0: let's do that and uh, grab your Bible and turn back to the book of Philippians. Uh, Did you guys enjoy hearing Heath Lambert's testimony? Um, You know, as I was praying, and we often have family members and friends on our list, and we've even talked to some of you this week, um, let's just remember that we serve a big God and He's able to work in even the most challenging and impossible situation and uh, and we not ought give up hope, <laughs> because he's the God that can do those things. Uh, so trust that that was an encouragement to you. Uh, we're looking at Philippians chapter 3 today, and we'll pick it up uh, where we left off from a couple of weeks ago. And uh, what I want to do is just sort of set the context by reading uh, the section that we're looking at for you, uh, and then we'll... Uh, We'll uh, take all the pieces apart, put them on the table, and put them back together and figure out what everything is uh, saying to us today. So look at uh, with, with me, please, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, let's start in verse 7 because that really is the beginning of the main thought here. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now remember, just a little contextual con- uh, footnote. Um, he 's just talked about the fact that if if uh, we had the you know who 's who in Judaism book in front of us here, he would be at the top of the list. This was a Hebrew of Hebrews. he was a Pharisee, he was a teacher of the law uh, he He was schooled under one of the foremost rabbis of the day um, he uh, if If any would come together and say, "Tell me about this man, Paul." They would say he was righteous in the ways of the law, he is blameless according to the law, and, and he was a zealous persecutor of the church, which you know, was exactly what he was supposed to do because Christianity was a threat to Orthodox Judaism. So this guy is, is a, a Jew above all Jews. He is an Israelite above all Israelites. Um, and what he's talking about here is how all sorts of Jewish people, all sorts of Israelites had put their confidence in those things. They put their confidence in the fact they were Abraham's children, that they obeyed the law, that they knew the Torah. Um, and, and Paul's just saying, something happened to me to where I just totally abandoned all that. In fact, I look at that, that pile of stuff and I say, you know what, that, that, is, that is rubbish compared to what I've discovered now. He says, I have counted as loss all those things for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, so that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's kind of where we left off last time. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I have a very unimpressive outline that you're holding in your hands there. It's just to kind of keep us on the road and not get off in the ditch, but most of what we're going to talk about I'll I'll explain on the board here. Um. One of the major themes of Philippians is the theme of sanctification. And uh, you'll recall that sanctification is sort of that that middle section of uh, a person's salvation. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, if if you're a Christian, there was a time in your life when you were converted. And, And what that means is there was a time in your life when you recognized that you were Separated from your Creator, you were living in sin, you were living apart from God, you you were making your life... Did you catch what we read in Psalm 115? um, Talking about idols... You know, living for all these other things that, that can't do anything for you. I mean, I mean think about that. You, and you might live for sports, and you may say, you may know every statistic, know every game. Uh, you've got the apparel. You've got the bumper sticker. And, and your life is just consumed by that. And, and the psalmist would say, well, at the end of the day, what good does that do you? Right? I mean, we, we turn these things into idols. And like he says, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. You, you remember, is it Jeremiah? He talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you build this idol, and then you have to nail it to the fence so it doesn't fall over in the wind. And he says, that's what you're worshiping? This thing you have to nail to the fence so it doesn't fall over when the east wind picks up? You know, really? That's that's your God? And these, these satires, these these mockeries of idols, because that's that's what they are. They're pathetic God replacements. But But there was a time in your life when you said, you know what, that's not what life's about. I'm living for the wrong things. And you recognize that God gave illumination to your heart, and you recognize that your only hope is if you had a Savior to somehow restore that broken relationship with God and to forgive you uh, for going your own way and making your life about everything else except the God that made you. And, And when that happened, when you trusted Christ, a couple of things happened. God declared you righteous, We talked about that last week, right? That's what he was talking about here. That I may be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, meaning I didn't go out and try to earn my way to God, but instead I received the very righteousness of God, the righteousness that Jesus earned when he lived on this earth, receiving that as a gift of his grace. And so God declares you because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He says that person right there is not guilty but righteous. There's another thing he does. He restores, He reconciles you to Himself. You, know, you guys know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ doing what? Do you remember what that says? God was in Christ Reconciling the world to himself. And he's, and then, and then for those of us that are believers, he gives us that ministry to go out and get the word out about reconciliation. But he restores that relationship. Romans 8 says he adopts us into his family. Romans chapter 3 says he redeems us from sin. The, the, the weight, the bondage to sin is now broken to where we can now say no to our sin and we can walk in a new direction. Uh, Romans 8 tells us he gives us his Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 tells us we get a new heart. Um, All these things that happen at your conversion, and and, and maybe to sum it up the way 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? Because all this stuff changes. The paradigm totally changes. You are changed from the inside out. And we say, great, praise God. We're we're forgiven. We've got a ticket to heaven. The Spirit's in us. We're walking now in the ways of the Lord. But there's this one problem. There's there's one thing that does not happen at your conversion, and that is God does not take every sin in in you and just eradicate it to where you are no longer struggling with sin. And there's a time when you die or when Jesus comes back that that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to take every ounce of remaining sin in you, the the flesh, remember that, The, the, the... dead elephant on your back. Remember that analogy? The The old man that's dead, but his carcass is strapped to your back, still providing plenty of, of unrighteous momentum so that sometimes you do what you don't want to do, right? Romans 7. Um, and there's a day when God's going to remove that. He's going to take the old man off, and, and you will totally look like Jesus. But until then, we're stuck in this middle part between our conversion and between what theologians call our glorification when Jesus removes the sin finally, and that middle section is called sanctification. And a big theme of Philippians is sanctification. Um, And there are two, you need to know this, there are so many wrong views of sanctification today. I mean, um, people are pursuing the Christian life in dozens of aberrant ways. All sorts of things, and, and we're going to content ourselves with I, what I feel like are the the ones that might be the most, uh, might be the biggest temptations. I mean, I hope, I hope that none of you were watching like Joel Osteen this morning. You're thinking, well, that's what the Christian life is about. I hope that's not where you're at. Okay, if you are, call me this week. We'll talk about that. Um, but but there are there are two wrong views of sanctification that you need to be aware of, not necessarily because you buy into them, but if you're not careful, you can find your Christian walk gravitating toward one of these wrong views, okay? So you guys remember the little chart where we talk about, you know, we come to Christ and then spiritual growth kind of looks like this. You remember that? okay? that That's the biblical model. I mean, it, it's a progressive sanctification where the slope of the line is trending toward righteousness, but frankly, you have good days and bad days, and, and this side of heaven, you're not going to be perfect like Jesus. But would you believe that there's actually a view of sanctification that says, you know what? Um, wham! And then you're perfect, okay? So this is This is Jesus, right? This is perfect righteousness. And, you know, you're converted somewhere down here. There's a little cross where you're converted. And you're kind of on the road there. And then something happens. Something happens uh, in your Christian life. And and it's it's like a spiritual catapult. And it's just like, whing And you're just up in the heavens, and 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 you attain to some sort of perfectionism. Um, have you heard of this before? Have you heard of a man named John Wesley? Wesley, okay. Um, back in the uh, oh, 18th century, uh, 19th, 18th century, there was a group of men at Oxford, and um, they were all studying theology, and there was just one little problem. They were all unbelievers. They had this little thing called the Holy Club, and they would get together and they would chat. And, um, and, and you would recognize some of these names, but, but two of them you know, uh, uh, John and Charles Wesley. And um, the, John and Charles, along with another man named George Whitfield were essentially the founders of what became known as Methodism. And as the name probably sounds, we have Methodist churches today, and that's where those came from, from, from Wesley and Whitfield. And um, one of the things that John Wesley believed was that there was something, I, th- I think he called it entire sanctification. And the idea was that at some point in your Christian life, you can get to the point where basically you don't sin anymore you don't sin anymore. Okay. Now, how many of you have heard that before? it's called Wesleyan perfectionism. You've heard that before? Okay. Um, how many of you are tempted by that? You think, "Yep, yep, I, I, I can get there." I didn't think so. I didn't think so. But but let me but let me tell you, but well, actually let me give you the second one and then I'll show you why this is a temptation. Here's another view. Was that one before he was saved or after? After. Yeah and actually i was i was having lunch with a pastor friend this last week and whitfield uh have you read any of whitfield's letters your uh my favorite biography is of is of george whitfield written by a guy named arnold dallamore and uh if you want if you like biographies if you want to be built up in your walk with god by reading about other guys of the faith i would recommend uh, arnold dallamore um uh two volume set on uh on whitfield but but whitfield would be like you know, um, he's writing this brotherly love, gracious, kind, and then he'd be like, "You need to give up this perfectionism thing, man." You know, and they'd go back and forth about it. Whitfield was always trying to convince him that that was a wrong view of sanctification. But here's, here's a, um, and, and by the way, um, in charismatic circles, you see a very similar thing. But what is in charismatic circles? What is this moment of, of launch? Yeah, it's it's the um, um, uh, it's a second work of grace. It, usually, it's accompanied by speaking in tongues. It's it's the you know the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and so the, the charismatic view is is really sort of an aberration of the old old Wesleyan view uh, of that. Now, um, actually, I'm going to leave that here. I'll just draw another picture. Here here's another here's another aberration here. And that is, um, you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, because what is driving this supposedly is something called let go and let God. Now, that sounds good, right? I mean, who, who, who would not want to let God? I mean, you know, do you believe in him? Well, sure, of course you would want to let God. And it's hard to illustrate, but but this is this is the model of sanctification that says um, because Jesus paid it all, and that's true, and because the work of redemption is complete, and that's true, um, I will sit, and Jesus will magically make me into a super Christian because Jesus paid it all, right? So I just I just hang I just you know don't need to read my Bible. Don't need to think about my sin. Don't need to think about how I'm treating my wife or my husband or my kids. Don't. I, I just just I, it's let go and let God. I just I just need to get out of the way and Jesus is going to do all this amazing work in me, and I'm just going to grow and be like Jesus. Okay. What's the problem with that? You have to seek, you have to seek God. Yeah. Yeah. You have to seek God, and it's not biblical. I mean, show me a chapter and verse where it says sit on the spiritual couch and that's all you have to do, right? Work out your salvation. Yeah, we just we read that back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it is God who is at work in you, right? But there is an effort, there is a striving, there is a working out by God's grace that the Christian is called to do. So let's go back to the first one here. We may not have any Wesley, Wesley perfectionists here or any charismatics that would believe in some sort of second work of grace. But let me ask you this. And be honest, because this is for posterity. Um, Are you ever tempted to think that there is some secret to the Christian life that if you could just figure it out, it would make your life a lot easier? you. You ever tempted in that? Well, you walk into Mardell, you know, the secret of being a Christian, and you're like, oh, it's a bestseller. Right, I need to read this book. Or, you know, you've got to hear this message. You've got to hear this sermon. You've got to, you know, there's, I I think that here's what a lot of us do. The Christian life is hard. It's hard to struggle with sin. It's hard to mortify the old man and to walk a newness of life. It's hard to get up each day and say, I have to live dependent on God's grace or I'm going to end up in a place I don't want to go to today. That's hard work, isn't it? And the temptation is, but what if there was, what if I was doing it wrong? Or what if, what if there was a shortcut? Or what if there was some, something that I don't know? Some secret that all those, see all those other people that have it all together, right? I mean, obviously, they must have it easier than I do, so. And I think, even though we may not buy into Wesleyan perfectionism, we are tempted to think that there is a spiritual shortcut. There is a spiritual secret which if we knew, we wouldn't struggle so much with. I don't know. Maybe not. And I think this is a huge struggle. I think we all have said in our hearts, I'll just let Jesus take care of it because, you know, this is too hard. And when we buy into that, we do short-circuit God's plan for making us more like Christ. Okay? Now, look at the text Guess we we had some early Wesleyan perfectionists. Obviously, they weren't Wesleyan, running around in the Philippian church, and they were saying, "Our salvation is complete. We have arrived at perfection. We have gained all of Christ the way He just articulated it." And and a lot of what Paul is addressing in Philippians is some of these things going on in the church that needed to be fixed, needed to be addressed in some way. So he's just laid out and talked about how he has found righteousness in Christ. He has found that the greatest thing in life is knowing Jesus, walking with him, being connected with him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, the conformity to his death, so that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. What could be better than that? And then verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Um, Paul says, even though that's true, I'm not there yet. I've not attained to the resurrection of the dead. I don't know the the fullness of this, this conformity to Christ. I'm on my way. But I, I have, I'm not, I'm not done. Jesus is not done with me. He says, I've not obtained those things. I've, I've not become perfect. And it's interesting. The, um, uh, you, you can see how the, how the, the New American Saturn translates it. Do you see in verse twelve, already become perfect? Do you see that that word become perfect there? Um, it's um is the, is the word um teleon is the noun, and and it's got a pretty. Wide range of meaning. It can mean uh, to complete a goal. It can mean um, mature, or it can mean perfect, like there's no flaws in it. So there's a, there's a range of of meaning there. And probably in this context, it either means something like I have not finally attained to all these things that he just listed, or I have not become perfect in Christ. And they those really kind of overlap. But but notice how it gets translated. Become perfect. It's um, I, I told you this oh, two three weeks ago. There's a way in, in Greek to form a word, just like in English. Um, we use different forms of words depending on the type of action that we're talking about. And one of the things that's probably the most unique type of verb you can make in Greek is something called a perfect verb. And you may remember my illustration from last time. The perfect means that something has happened, some action has happened, but there are ongoing lasting effects into the future. And that's the form that he uses here. And, and the significance, the reason I'm telling you all this, is that what he's saying is I have not gotten to the place where I have been completed, perfected, knowing Christ perfectly in the way that he just articulated here. It hasn't happened yet. That he, what he's describing here is that state of glorification. What he's saying is I have not been glorified yet. I still struggle with sin. I don't see Christ perfectly face to face. I still live by faith. You remember that? Remember back in 2 Corinthians? He said, we walk by faith, not by sight. And And, and if you look at the context of what he's actually saying there, what he's saying is, I'm not in heaven yet staring at Jesus in his eyes. I don't, I'm not living with looking at Jesus, being with Jesus presently. So right now on this earth, we live by faith. And that means we trust that he's there, that he's working, and someday we will know him face to face. But not yet. It's not, we're not there yet. So that's what he's saying. I haven't obtained it. I haven't become perfect. So there, John Wesley, see? It doesn't happen. Not in this life. And I don't know about you, but if the Apostle Paul says, I haven't become perfect, um, that probably means that we haven't either. Just saying. Um, So he's not already obtained these things. He's become perfect. Now now look, look back at the text there. Not that I have already obtained it. What is the it? What is the it? What do you think? Yes, but, but you point to, okay, it is a pronoun, right? All pronouns have a, I know, I know, you don't want to do this, do you? Um, they have an antecedent. Uh, uh, pronouns are, are like, they're, they're nouns, they're arrows, right? They're, they're, they're pointing to something, right? So if I say, um, that's Alan, he's my son, he is pointing back to who? Pointing back to Alan, right? So what's the it pointing back to? The previous verse and, and and what is it talking about? How would you sum it up? Yeah, he's look at verse ten. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What he's saying is, I have not known Christ fully yet. I've known him in part. I've known him in my conversion. But I don't know him fully yet, and this is this is one of those like, what do you, what comes into your mind when when you think about um, what heaven is like? I mean, be honest, what, what, what really comes into your mind? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, and, and what about him? Seated on the throne in power. On the throne in power. Very good. That's true. The Savior we're going to worship. No sin. No, sin. no worry. No, worry. <laughs> no bills. No 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 health issues. Yeah, I know. I know. No IRS. No IRS. Amen. Um, some of you guys have been married a long time in here, okay? And what what part of God's design in marriage is that? This person, who often is very much not like me, or at least I thought she might have been or he might have been, and then we're around for a little while, and then we kind of see that we have a lot of differences. But part of God's grace is that those two people, by God's grace, die to themselves and know Christ together. And and there's a... I would say couples that have good marriages that have been married a long time would say... I know and love my spouse better today than the day we got married. I hear that a lot. But marriage is, you're growing in knowing this person. The next year you know them a little better, and then you know them a little better. And 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 some of you that have been married a long time, you can almost not really read each other's minds, but you know each other that well. You almost predict what they're going to do. You predict what they're going to say. Are you, okay? That's, is that? And what the, the picture that's being um, presented here is that we know Jesus partially now. But heaven, there will be a day when we know him, this is amazing, we will know him fully. You know, And, and I think so, a couple that's been married a long time is a small but true picture of that. That that there's a knowing, there's a a unity, there's an appreciation, there's an understanding, there's a depth in the relationship. Uh, In our family we call it a depth of feeling. There's a connectedness there that you can say, yeah, this is a significant relationship where I know this person. And what Paul is saying is, I don't have that knowledge yet. I want to, right? But I don't don't know Jesus. It's like saying and you guys appreciate this if you've been married, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You know, when some couple in their 20s says, "Oh, we love each other and we know each other." And you're like, <laughs> and you say as you and your wife walk out, well, they'll learn, right? They'll learn. Because they have no idea the depth of the significance of love and knowing another person that is ahead of them assuming they will walk with God in their marriage. And that's what Paul is saying here is is you, you guys haven't known that depth yet you haven't known Christ at the at the level that you will know him one day he says i haven't obtained that yet i I don't have a, a, a comprehensive fully knowing Christ yet so what does he do does he say well i'll just I'll just sit around till I die I'll just let go and let God and one day smack it's done and Paul who i i I have no way of proving this, but I think that when Paul was in high school, he ran track and field. I really do. And, and, if, and if he didn't run track and field, I bet he was a sports fanatic. Because I don't know if you've read his letters, you know, he wrote the majority of the New Testament, he loves sports analogies. Have you noticed this? Um, I run in such a way that I may win. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I box is not beating the air. What? what was, all right. Um, I press on for the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ. We're going to get to that one. Um, he loves these sports illustrations. And so he's going to go to his main little toolbox of analogies that has NFL, NBA, Major League has all those written on the outside, okay? And the one he picks is from track and field or a race. And he says, I haven't obtained it or have I become perfect, but I press on. I press on. And in fact let me let me just show you can I just show you the track and field words in this text just so you can be thinking of them as we go on here. He says, not that I've already obtained it, nor have I become perfect, but I press on. That's a track term. In order that I may lay hold of. That's a track term. That for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. There it is again. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. That's a track term. To what lies ahead, I press on. There it is again. Toward the goal for the prize. There it is of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He he has track and field on his mind here. And he's saying, in a sense, there's the finish line, and I'm not there yet, but on the other side of that finish line is fully knowing Jesus. And... Paul does not have in mind getting there as fast as he can as you would think of in a race. What he has in mind is the effort, the striving, the working out, the, the, the running to Christ. Not because he wants to end the race so quickly, but because he says the endurance, the effort, the work that I put into that is part of what God is doing in me right now. So he says, I don't sit on the spiritual couch. I haven't already obtained it. I'm not perfect, and I don't sit around. What I do is I put on my track cleats, and I run, and I press on, so that I may lay hold of that, this is interesting, for which also I was laid hold of. And that's one of those words that it, it's, it's wordy in Greek, and the Nasby tries to preserve the wordiness And you have to read it about six times to go, what is he talking about here? But he says, for our our purposes right now, he presses on that I might, and I want to talk about this little word, lay hold of. You know what it means? To win. To attain. To grasp. So he says, I press on so that I may win or grasp or lay hold of or attain Now, the objects imply, but what is he pressing on to get? What is he pressing on to reach for? What is he pressing on to win? What is it? It's Jesus. It's to know him fully. So he says, I I press on. And and again, the action here is ongoing, present, habitual. This is not something you say, well, I'm going to do it on Monday, and then Tuesday through Saturday I'm going to relax and I'll start again on Monday. This is an ongoing, striving, pressing on uh, toward Christ. To grasp Christ, right? Because, this is so cool, because he's already been grasped by Christ. One of the things that that all of you need to have crystal clear in your mind is how to think about the effort, the work, the obedience that we put forward in the Christian life. Why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Why do we strive according to his power? Why, when the Bible says, love your neighbor, love your wife, um, uh, train your kids, um, be patient with everybody, um, don't let the sun go down in your anger, forgive one another, when the Bible says those things, what are we supposed to do? Obey! Right, absolutely. Yeah, well, welcome to to spiritual kindergarten, right? We, We obey the commands of the Bible. And... But it is so important that we think rightly about that. The reason we strive, the reason we obey, the reason we endure is not because, in a sense, there's some merit we're trying to achieve, something we're trying to gain, I'll say, apart from Christ, because, look at the slide, He's already grasped us. You see that? We, we pursue sanctification Out of the security of knowing that we already belong to Christ. Does that make sense? So, so, so this, this, see, there's some Christians that get very, very frustrated. Very, very frustrated. I'm not doing enough. I'm not striving enough. I'm not working enough. They're so more mature than I am and I can't be like them. And we do all this and they get discouraged. And, and you know, there is a sanctified form of discouragement that says, I hate that I'm still a sinner and I long to be more like Jesus. That's a good thing. But there is a dangerous type of discouragement that says, I can't measure up, I can't work hard enough, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, it's not working, I'm never going to get over it, I'm never going to be like that person. And you need to hear that that is the wrong paradigm. Because he already has you. He already has you. Jesus said, no one can snatch the believer out of the Father's hand. Right, my father has given to me. He's greater than all. No one can snatch him out of the father's hand. Romans eight says nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Um, we strive according to His power. Right, we we strive according to the power that He's already working in us. That's why Paul said back in Philippians two, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But who who's the one doing the work through us? It's God. So 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 a right view of sanctification says we've already been. I've been trying to think how to explain it. I don't know how you explain it. We've already been captured by Christ. He already owns us. He already is in relationship with us. He says, there's nothing you can do to break my relationship with you. That doesn't mean you you stop at mile three and say, well, the race is done. I'll just walk now. No, 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 no. You don't pull over and walk. But you run knowing that there is the security that he's going to get you to the finish line. And you, you don't have to worry or fret or be discouraged because he already has you in his hand. Do you see that? Isn't that a cool little kind of thing there? Yes. I just want to have this because I can't read this verse without also thinking of Hebrews 1 through 3. And everything you're saying, I keep reading this and getting excited. And I want to I uh, read this. But I want to yeah. say that about 18 years ago, using a font style of about 4, I printed out these two verses and I put them on a key chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because there are all sorts of parallel passages that connect to this. And maybe if I can just borrow the verse that he mentioned. If if you are growing weary in the race, it's probably because you've forgotten the second part of that verse. That you've already been laid held of by him. And that gives us encouragement to endure. Now, he's going to say it again. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what, rise, uh, what lies ahead. Um, so he says it again. And you get the idea that there, there were all sorts of people saying, well, we're perfect. We already know Christ fully. We already..." And he, So he says it a second time. I've not grasped it yet. In fact, it's a parallel to verse 12. I've not gained it. I've not received it yet. And then... Um, I've told you guys before, probably dozens of times, that we don't grow when we try to stop do just stop doing the wrong thing. We grow when we replace the wrong thing with the right thing, right? You have to put off and put on. And once you understand that sort of Ephesians four twenty-two to twenty-four model of growth, you'll see it all over the Bible. And guess what we have right here in Philippians? We have a put off and we have a put on. There it is. Now again, think. Think like you know high school track. You're in the stadium. Um, you know, when I was in school, we started on a dirt track, and then we got one of those real nice, nice all-weather tracks later on. That was fun. But you see, you know, the the chalk lines, the cleats, you know, the the jumpers. There are the high jumpers and long jumpers and triple jumpers. And they're all hanging. Around. And, and you kind of picture that. And he and he says, I'm going to forget what lies behind me. And I'm going to extend or stretch forward toward what is ahead. The, the picture of the verb of, of stretching ahead is... Um, any of you guys sprinters? Any sprinters? Okay. Um, what do they teach you as you're crossing the line? What, what, what do you do? If I can pick on you. What do you do? Yeah, you lean into the tape, don't you, right? Because Because you know... If there's some guy right next to you, it may be, you know, whoever gets his nose across the tape first, right? And, and all spring, you, you watch the Olympics, you'll see him, you know? And, and almost, it's funny, even, um, even the guy that's like in eighth place, when he crosses the line, he'll do it out of habit. You ever notice that? And, they just, you know. and, and that's, that's the picture here, is he's saying, just like an athlete, as he's going, he's stretching forward, he's giving it that last bit of effort. And, and that's, that's the model of sanctification. As we endure, as we work out our salvation, as we strive according to his power, we're, we're giving it that last bit of effort just to get us across the line, he says. But before we get to that part, he says something very important. He says, forgetting what lies behind. What does that mean? What is water under the bridge? Forgetting your old ways. Yeah, what old ways and successes? What, what? Yes, yes, but go further. By context, by context, he's still talking about what he was talking about way back in verses 3 to 6. Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee, keeping the law perfectly, zealous and persecutor the church. He, what he's saying is, if if and this this is, I hope this is helpful to you because I think of everything that we're talking about today. This this to me was like, oh wow, that's really helpful. There are ways that you lived before Christ. There are things that you identified yourself with before Christ. There are habits that you developed before Christ. There were ways of thinking that you had before Christ. And somewhere in all of that, before Jesus, all of us in this room had a theology. We all had something that we said, this is it. This is life. This is what motivates me. This is why I do what I do. This is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to bring whatever into my life. We all had a way of, we all had something. Maybe we had lots of things. It's not like one thing. It's maybe it's a bunch of things. Okay. And and, and this is what's important. He, he's not saying I, well, I, I don't think he's saying this. Maybe he is. You can argue with me if you want, but I don't think he's saying you need to forget all those bad, sinful things you did in your past. I, I think that's true, but I don't think that's what he's really talking about specifically here. What I think he's saying is, Christian, you need to be very careful. That as you pursue Christ, you don't fall back into loving, identifying, pursuing, embracing some of those things that were your life before you were a Christian. Does that make sense? Um, I, I, yeah, I think that would be a good way to sum it up. Confidence in the flesh, sure. Yeah, Because, uh, like for example, I might... Let's pick. We're talking about athletics. So let's just pick. Let's say you got a young man, and, and he's the track star. He's he's the um, captain of the football team. You know, he he can play basketball too. He play, you know, this is Bo Jackson, right? I mean, this is the guy that can play every sport and 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 do it well. And, and this happens in athletes. It's, it's a guy analogy, but I understand guy analogies better. Um, that that can become me. That's me. It is, I'm, I'm a jock. I'm an athlete. That's what I do. And, and, I, and, and my, well-being, my well-being rests on whether I won the game, I didn't throw any interceptions, I, right? And I, I can start to think about my life is, is how I'm doing in this sport or how I'm, you know, did I make the team or did I get a scholarship or did I, and that can become my life. No, no, I love sports, I haven't played some sports, right? And that's cool. We can do that. But but we don't want to let it become the reason that I exist, right? So let's say that this hypothetical guy becomes a Christian. He says, you know what? I recognize that it doesn't matter at the end of the day if I can throw a football better than anybody else. I'm still dying and I'm still going to hell. And my only, my only hope is a Savior. So he repents and he trusts Christ. And he starts walking with God and he starts understanding this. You better believe... There's gonna be a temptation the next time he picks up a football or a baseball bat or puts on his running shoes or whatever, that that temptation is there. Right? To go back to trusting all those things and identifying himself with all those things. And, and maybe for, for you guys and for me, it wasn't athletics. Maybe it was success as a businessman. Right. Maybe it was the relationships that you had, you, you were the life of the party or the the, the friend that everybody loved or you know, whatever it is, but, but but that's what he's saying here is whatever was your false God before Christ, forget it. Set it aside, don't fall back into it. And as you put that off, what do you do? You reach forward to what lies ahead. you strive toward knowing Christ. Fully. Run. And think about that. Um, we've all seen football games where someone gets the ball, they get confused, and they run toward the wrong end zone. Right? You all see like that? we got to make sure we're running the right direction. We're striving toward Christ. And, and I think, you know, if we blow those models off for a minute, how do you know if you're stretching forward to what lies ahead? And the answer is, are you knowing better and becoming more like Jesus? Um, it's really kind of interesting if you, if you break down the language here. Just want, I want to show you this because it breaks down so cool here. Um, Paul says this, I have been known, right? I know, and I will know. Or looking backward, he says, I will have known. And then he says it a different way. He says, I have been grasped. Or, or your Bible says, laid held of, laid hold of, have been grasped. I am grasping, or I'm, I'm, make it present. I am grasping. Would you use two P's? One P? And then I will grasp. Or again, looking backward, he might say, I have grasped once he's glorified. Okay? using two different verbs, two different ways, what he's saying is, I have been known, I have been grasped. What's this? That's conversion, right? I'm knowing, I'm grasping, I'm striving forward now. What's this? This is sanctification. And then one day I will have known, I have grasped, or I will know, and I will grasp. What's this? Glorification. You see that? It's right there in those three verses. Um. And it's interesting, he says, uh, just the last verse, and then I want to show you one cross-reference, and we'll quit here. He says, uh, I reach forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God, that, that's, that's your call. That's when God calls you out of darkness into light. It's when he calls you to himself in salvation Here's the $100 exegetical question for the morning. What is the prize of that call? I'll give you a hint. It's not forgiveness of sin. It's not being declared righteous in His sight. It's not being redeemed. It's not being adopted. It's not being sanctified. Okay? Those are all means toward the prize. What's the prize? Knowing Him. The reason God has to forgive your sin, declare you righteous, justify you, save you, apply propitiation so there's no wrath, redeem you out of the, out of the bondage of sin, adopt you, save you, reconcile, all those are so that you get God back. You know him now. You, Jesus is the prize. The, the end of the race is not, oh, I finally have to, um, you know, I don't have to strive against my sin anymore. The end of the race is you get to know your Savior fully. All of those things are means or parts of what it means to get Jesus. And let me show you this. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, just as one cross reference here, and we'll call it a morning. This is in uh, the, the chapter that we typically think of as the love chapter, you know, love is patient, love is kind. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he gets to the end of this, and he's talking about what it's like now and what it'll be like in heaven. Okay, So what is it like now and what it'll be like in heaven? Um, Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child, but when I came a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Who's he talking about? Right now, it's like we're seeing the reflection of Christ. We see him in his word. We see him at work. But we don't see him with our eyes. We don't see him literally for who he is yet. But watch how... This is what just blew me away. Watch how he describes heaven. Watch how he describes the end, the goal of sanctification. I, I know I, now we've seen a mirror dimly, but them face to face, now I know in part, but then what is it? I shall know fully, just as what? Doesn't that sound like Philippians? He has grasped me. He's already laid hold of me. He already knows me perfectly. We don't know him perfectly yet. We don't see him uh, clearly yet. But one day we will know him perfectly. Like that couple that's been married for 50 years and there is a depth of knowledge in that the prize at the end of the race is Christ himself. And we'll know him perfectly then. All right. More news at 10? No. 9.30 Central next week. All right, let's pray.